Hello, my name is Amanda Berry, and I'm an actor and narrator currently residing in rural Northeast Oregon. I'm really excited to be able to bring Black Beauty to you, as it's a story that I loved when I was a child, albeit it was the Disney version. <laughs> I loved reading as a child, and I'm one of those people that can reread a book multiple, multiple times and always find something new to love about it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy Black Beauty. Black Beauty, the Autobiography of a Horse, by Anna Sewell, English Quaker, 1820-1878. Part 1. 1. My Early Home The first place that I can well remember was a large, pleasant meadow with a pond of clear water in it. Some shady trees leaned over it, and rushes and water lilies grew at the deep end. Over the hedge on one side, we looked into a plowed field, and on the other, we looked over a gate at our master's house which stood by the roadside. At the top of the meadow was a grove of fir trees, and at the bottom, a running brook overhung by a steep bank. While I was young, I lived upon my mother's milk, as I could not eat grass. In the daytime, I ran by her side, and at night, I lay down close by her. When it was hot, we used to stand by the pond in the shade of the trees, and when it was cold, we had a nice warm shed near the grove. As soon as I was old enough to eat grass, my mother used to go out to work in the daytime and come back in the evening. There were six young colts in the meadow besides me. They were older than I was. Some were nearly as large as grown-up horses. I used to run with them and had great fun. We used to gallop all together round and round the field as hard as we could go. Sometimes we had rather rough play, for they would frequently bite and kick as well as gallop. One day, when there was a good deal of kicking, my mother whinnied to me to come to her, and then she said, I wish you to pay attention to what I am going to say to you. The colts who live here are very good colts, but they are cart horse colts, and of course they have not learned manners. You have been well-bred and well-born. Your father has a great name in these parts, and your grandfather won the cup two years at the Newmarket races. Your grandmother had the sweetest temper of any horse I ever knew, and I think you have never seen me kick or bite. I hope you will grow up gentle and good, and never learn bad ways. Do your work with a good will, lift your feet up well when you trot, and never bite or kick, even in play. I have never forgotten my mother's advice. I knew she was a wise old horse, and our master thought a great deal of her. Her name was Duchess, but he often called her Pet. Our master was a good, kind man. He gave us good food, good lodging, and kind words. He spoke as kindly to us as he did to his little children. We were all fond of him, and my mother loved him very much. 
When she saw him at the gate, she would neigh with joy and trot up to him. He would pat and stroke her and say, Well, old pet, and how is your little Inky? I was a dull black, so he called me Inky. Then he would give me a piece of bread, which was very good, and sometimes he brought a carrot from my mother. All the horses would come to him, but I think we were his favorites. My mother always took him to the town on a market day in a light gig. There was a plowboy, Dick, who sometimes came into our field to pluck blackberries from the hedge. When he had eaten all he wanted, he would have what he called fun with the colts, throwing stones and sticks at them to make them gallop. We did not much mind him, for we could gallop off, but sometimes a stone would hit us and hurt us. One day he was at this game and did not know that the master was in the next field, but he was there, watching what was going on. Over the hedge he jumped in a snap, and catching Dick by the arm, he gave him such a box on the ear as made him roar with the pain and surprise. As soon as we saw the master, we trotted up nearer to see what went on. Bad boy, he said. Bad boy to chase the colts. This is not the first time nor the second, but it shall be the last. There, take your money and go home. I shall not want you on my farm again. So we never saw Dick anymore. Old Daniel, the man who looked after the horses, was just as gentle as our master. So we were well off. Two, the hunt. Before I was two years old, a circumstance happened which I have never forgotten. It was early in the spring. There had been a little frost in the night, and a light mist still hung over the woods and meadows. I and the other colts were feeding at the lower part of the field when we heard, quite in the distance, what sounded like the cry of dogs. The oldest of the colts raised his head, pricked his ears, and said, "'There are the hounds!' and immediately cantered off, followed by the rest of us to the upper part of the field, where we could look over the hedge and see several fields beyond. My mother and an old riding horse of our master's were also standing near, and seemed to know all about it. "'They have found a hare,' said my mother." And if they come this way, we shall see the hunt. And soon, the dogs were all tearing down the field of young wheat next to ours. I never heard such a noise as they made. They did not bark, nor howl, nor whine, but kept on a... Yo! Yo! Oh! Oh! Yo! Yo! Oh! Oh! At the top of their voices. After them came a number of men on horseback, some of them in green coats, all galloping as fast as they could. The old horse snorted and looked eagerly after them, and we young colts wanted to be galloping with them, but they were soon away into the fields lower down. Here it seemed as if they had come to a stand. The dogs left off barking and ran about every way with their noses to the ground. "'I have lost the scent,' said the old horse. "'Perhaps the hare will get off.' "'What hare?' I said. "'Oh, I don't know what hare.' Likely enough, it may be one of our own hares out of the woods. Any hare they can find will do for the dogs and men to run after. And before long, the dogs began their, Yo! Yo, whoa, whoa! Again! And back they came all together at full speed, making straight for our meadow at the part where the high bank and hedge overhang the brook. Now we shall see the hare, said my mother. And just then, a 
hare, wild with fright, rushed by and made for the woods. On came the dogs, they burst over the bank, leaped the stream, and came dashing across the field, followed by the huntsmen. Six or eight men leaped their horses clean over, close upon the dogs. The hare tried to get through the fence. It was too thick, and she turned sharp round to make for the road. But it was too late. The dogs were upon her with their wild cries. We heard one shriek, and that was the end of her. One of the huntsmen rode up and whipped off the dogs, who would soon have torn her to pieces. He held her up by the leg, torn and bleeding, and all the gentlemen seemed well pleased. As for me, I was so astonished that I did not at first see what was going on by the brook, but when I did look, there was a sad sight. Two fine horses were down. One was struggling in the stream and the other was groaning on the grass. One of the riders was getting out of the water covered with mud, The other lay quite still. His neck is broke, said my mother. And serve him right, too, said one of the colts. I thought the same, but my mother did not join with us. Well, no, she said. You must not say that. But though I am an old horse and have seen and heard a great deal, I never yet could make out why men are so fond of this sport. They often hurt themselves often spoil good horses and tear up the fields, and all for a hare, or a fox, or a stag, that they could get more easily some other way. But we are only horses, and don't know. While my mother was saying this, we stood and looked on. Many of the riders had gone to the young man, but my master, who had been watching what was going on, was the first to raise him. His head fell back, and his arms hung down, and everyone looked very serious. There was no noise now. Even the dogs were quiet, and seemed to know that something was wrong. They carried him to our master's house. I heard afterward that it was young George Gordon, the squire's only son, a fine, tall young man, and the pride of his family. There was now riding off in all directions to the doctors, to the farriers, and no doubt to Squire Gordon's, to let him know about his son. When Mr. Bond, the farrier, came to look at the black horse that lay groaning on the grass, he felt him all over and shook his head. One of his legs was broken. Then someone ran to our master's house and came back with a gun. Presently there was a loud bang and a dreadful shriek, and then all was still. The black horse moved no more. My mother seemed much troubled. She said she had known that horse for years and that his name was Rob Roy. He was a good horse, and there was no vice in him. She never would go to that part of the field afterward. Not many days after, we heard the church bell tolling for a long time, and looking over the gate, we saw a long, strange black coach that was covered with black cloth and was drawn by black horses. After that came another, and another, and another, and all were black, while the bell kept tolling, tolling. They were carrying young Gordon to the churchyard to bury him. He would never ride again. What they did with Rob Roy I never knew, but t'was all for one little hare.
Three, my breaking in. I was now beginning to grow handsome. My coat had grown fine and soft and was bright black. I had one white foot and a pretty white star on my forehead. I was thought very handsome. My master would not sell me till I was four years old. He said lads ought not to work like men, and colts ought not to work like horses till they were quite grown up. When I was four years old, Squire Gordon came to look at me. He examined my eyes, my mouth, and my legs. He felt them all down. And then I had to walk and trot and gallop before him. He seemed to like me and said, When he has been well broken in, he will do very well. My master said he would break me in himself, as he should not like me to be frightened or hurt, and he lost no time about it, for the next day he began. Everyone may not know what breaking in is, therefore I will describe it. It means to teach a horse to wear a saddle and bridle, and to carry on his back a man, woman, or child, to go just the way they wish, and to go quietly. Besides this, he has to learn to wear a collar, a crupper, and a breeching, and to stand still while they are put on, then to have a cart or a chaise fixed behind, so that he cannot walk or trot without dragging it after him, and he must go fast or slow, just as his driver wishes. He must never start at what he sees, nor speak to other horses, nor bite, nor kick, nor have any will of his own, but always do his master's will, even though he may be very tired or hungry. But the worst of all is, when his harness is once on, he may neither jump for joy nor lie down for weariness. So you see, this breaking in is a great thing. I had, of course, long been used to a halter and a headstall, and to be led about in the fields and lanes quietly. But now I was to have a bit and bridle. My master gave me some oats as usual, and after a good deal of coaxing, he got the bit into my mouth and the bridle fixed. But it was a nasty thing. Those who have never had a bit in their mouths cannot think how bad it feels. A great piece of cold, hard steel as thick as a man's finger to be pushed into one's mouth, between one's teeth and over one's tongue, with the ends coming out at the corner of your mouth and held fast there by straps over your head, under your throat, round your nose, and under your chin, so that no way in the world can you get rid of the nasty hard thing. It is very bad. Yes, very bad. At least I thought so. But I knew my mother always wore one when she went out, and all the horses did when they were grown up. And so, what with the nice oats, and what with my master's pats kind words and gentle ways, I got to wear my bit and bridle. Next came the saddle, but that was not half so bad. My master put it on my back very gently, while old Daniel held my head. He then made the girths fast under my body, padding and talking to me all the time. Then I had a few oats, then a little leading about. And this he did every day, till I began to look for the oats in the saddle. At length, one morning, my master got on my back and rode me round the meadow on the soft grass. It certainly did feel queer, but I must say I felt rather proud to carry my master, and as he continued to ride me a little every day, I soon became accustomed to it. The next unpleasant business was putting on the iron shoes. That, too, was very hard at first. 
My master went with me to the smith's forge to see that I was not hurt or got any fright. The blacksmith took my feet in his hand, one after the other, and cut away some of the hoof. It did not pain me, so I stood still on three legs till he had done them all. Then he took a piece of iron the shape of my foot and clapped it on and drove some nails through the shoe quite into my hoof so that the shoe was firmly on. My feet felt very stiff and heavy, but in time I got used to it. And now, having got so far, my master went on to break me to harness. There were more new things to wear. First, a stiff, heavy collar just on my neck, and a bridle with great side pieces against my eyes called blinkers. And blinkers indeed they were, for I could not see on either side, but only straight in front of me. Next, there was a small saddle with a nasty, stiff strap that went right under my tail. That was the crupper. I hated the crupper. To have my long tail doubled up and poked through that strap was almost as bad as the bit. I never felt more like kicking. But of course, I could not kick such a good master. And so in time, I got used to everything and could do my work as well as my mother. I must not forget to mention one part of my training, which I have always considered a very great advantage. My master sent me for a fortnight to a neighboring farmer's, who had a meadow which was skirted on one side by the railway. Here were some sheep and cows, and I was turned in among them. I shall never forget the first train that ran by. I was feeding quietly near the pails which separated the meadow from the railway when I heard a strange sound at a distance. And before I knew whence it came, with a rush and a clatter and a puffing out of smoke, a long black train of something flew by and was gone almost before I could draw my breath. I turned and galloped to the further side of the meadow as fast as I could go, and there I stood snorting with astonishment and fear. In the course of the day, many other trains went by, some more slowly. These drew up at the station close by, and sometimes made an awful shriek and groan before they stopped. I thought it very dreadful. But the cows went on eating very quietly, and hardly raised their heads as the black, frightful thing came puffing and grinding past. For the first few days, I could not feed in peace. But as I found that this terrible creature never came into the field or did me any harm, I began to disregard it. And very soon... I cared as little about the passing of a train as the cows and sheep did. Since then, I have seen many horses much alarmed and restive at the sight or sound of a steam engine. But thanks to my good master's care, I am as fearless at railway stations as in my own stable. Now, if anyone wants to break in a young horse well, that is the way. My master often drove me in double harness with my mother, because she was steady and could teach me how to go better than a strange horse. She told me the better I behaved, the better I should be treated, and that it was the wisest always to do my best to please my master. But, said she, there are a great many kinds of men. There are good, thoughtful men like our master, that any horse may be proud to serve. And there are bad cruel men who never ought to have a horse or dog to call their own. Besides, there are a great many foolish men, vain, ignorant, and careless, 
who never trouble themselves to think. These spoil more horses than all, just for want of sense. They don't mean it, but they do it for all that. I hope you will fall into good hands, but a horse never knows who may buy him or who may drive him. It is all a chance for us. But still I say, do your best wherever it is and keep up your good name. Four, Bertwick Park. At this time, I used to stand in the stable, and my coat was brushed every day till it shone like a rook's wing. It was early in May when there came a man from Squire Gordon's who took me away to the hall. My master said, Goodbye, Inky. Be a good horse, and always do your best. I could not say goodbye, so I put my nose into his hand. He patted me kindly, and I left my first home. As I lived some years with Squire Gordon, I may as well tell something about the place. Squire Gordon's park skirted the village of Birtwick. It was entered by a large iron gate, at which stood the first lodge, and then you trotted along on a smooth road between clumps of large old trees, then another lodge and another gate, which brought you to the house and the gardens. Beyond this lay the home paddock, the old orchard, and the stables. There was accommodation for many horses and carriages, but I need only describe the stable into which I was taken. This was very roomy, with four good stalls. A large swinging window opened into the yard, which made it pleasant and airy. The first stall was a large square one, shut in behind with a wooden gate. The others were common stalls, good stalls, but not nearly so large. It had a low rack for hay and a low manger for corn. It was called a loose box, because the horse that was put into it was not tied up, but left loose to do as he liked. It is a great thing to have a loose box. Into this fine box the groom put me. It was clean, sweet, and airy. I never was in a better box than that, and the sides were not so high but that I could see all that went on through the iron rails that were at the top. He gave me some very nice oats. He patted me, spoke kindly, and then went away. When I had eaten my corn, I looked round. In the stall next to mine stood a little fat gray pony with a thick mane and tail, a very pretty head, and a pert little nose. I put my head up to the iron rails at the top of my box and said, How do you do? What is your name? He turned round as far as his halter would allow held up his head and said, My name is Mary Legs. I am very handsome. I carry the young ladies on my back and sometimes I take our mistress out in the low chair. They think a great deal of me and so does James. Are you going to live next door to me in the box? I said, Yes. Well then, he said, I hope you are good-tempered. I do not like anyone next door who bites. Just then, a horse's head looked over from the stall beyond the ears were laid back, and the eye looked rather ill-tempered. This was a tall chestnut mare with a long, handsome neck. She looked across to me and said, So, it is you who have turned me out of my box. It is a very strange thing for a colt like you to come and turn a lady out of her own home. I beg your pardon, I said. I have turned no one out. The man who brought me put me here, and I had nothing to do with it. 
And as to my being a colt, I am turned four years old and am a grown-up horse. I never had words yet with horse or mare, and it is my wish to live at peace. Well, she said, we shall see. Of course, I do not want to have words with a young thing like you. I said no more. In the afternoon when she went out, Merrylegs told me all about it. The thing is this, said Merrylegs. Ginger has a bad habit of biting and snapping. That is why they call her Ginger. And when she was in the loose box, she used to snap very much. One day, she bit James in the arm and made it bleed. And so Miss Flora and Miss Jessie, who are very fond of me, were afraid to come into the stable. They used to bring me nice things to eat, an apple or a carrot or a piece of bread. But after Ginger stood in that box, they dared not come. And I missed them very much. I hope they will now come again if you do not bite or snap. I told him I never bit anything but grass, hay, and corn, and could not think what pleasure Ginger found it. Well, I don't think she does find pleasure, says Mary Legs. It is just a bad habit. She says no one was ever kind to her, and why should she not bite? Of course it is a very bad habit, but I am sure if all she says be true... She must have been very ill-used before she came here. John does all he can to please her, and James does all he can, and our master never uses a whip if a horse acts right, so I think she might be good-tempered here. You see, he said with a wise look, I am twelve years old. I know a great deal, and I can tell you there is not a better place for a horse all round the country than this. John is the best groom that ever was. He has been here fourteen years, and you never saw such a kind boy as James is, so that it is all Ginger's own fault that she did not stay in that box. Five. A fair start. The name of the coachman was John Manley. He had a wife and one little child, and they lived in the coachman's cottage, very near the stables. The next morning he took me into the yard and gave me a good grooming, and just as I was going into my box, with my coat soft and bright, the squire came in to look at me, and seemed pleased. "'John,' he said, "'I meant to have tried the new horse this morning, but I have other business. You may as well take him around after breakfast. Go by the common in the highwood, and back by the watermill in the river. That will show his paces.' "'I will, sir,' said John." After breakfast he came and fitted me with a bridle. He was very particular in letting out and taking in the straps to fit my head comfortably. Then he brought a saddle, but it was not broad enough for my back. He saw it in a minute and went for another, which fitted nicely. He rode me first slowly, then a trot, then a canter, and when we were on the common ground he gave me a light touch with his whip, and we had a splendid gallop. Ho, ho, my boy! he said as he pulled me up. You would like to follow the hounds, I think. As we came back through the park, we met the squire and Mrs. Gordon walking. They stopped, and John jumped off. Well, John, how does he go? First rate, sir, answered John. He is as fleet as a deer, and has a fine spirit too, but the lightest touch of the rein will guide him, 
Down at the end of the common we met one of those travelling carts, hung all over with baskets, rugs and such like. You know, sir, many horses will not pass those carts quietly. He just took a good look at it and then went on as quiet and pleasant as could be. They were shooting rabbits near the high wood and a gun went off close by. He pulled up a little and looked, but did not stir a step to right or left. I just held the rein steady and did not hurry him. And it's my opinion he has not been frightened or ill-used while he was young. That's well, said the squire. I will try him myself tomorrow. The next day, I was brought up for my master. I remembered my mother's counsel and my good old master's, and I tried to do exactly what he wanted me to do. I found he was a very good rider and thoughtful for his horse, too. When he came home, the lady was at the hall door as he rode up. "'Well, my dear,' she said. "'How do you like him?' "'He is exactly what John said,' he replied. "'A pleasanter creature I never wish to mount. "'What shall we call him?' "'Would you like Ebony?' said she. "'He is as black as Ebony.' "'No, not Ebony.' "'Will you call him Blackbird, like your uncle's old horse?' "'No, he is far handsomer than old Blackbird ever was.' "'Yes,' she said. "'He is really quite a beauty, "'and he has such a sweet, good-tempered face "'and such a fine, intelligent eye. "'What do you say to calling him Black Beauty?' "'Black Beauty. "'Why, yes, I think that is a very good name. "'If you like it, it shall be his name.' "'And so it was. "'When John went into the stable,' He told James that master and mistress had chosen a good, sensible English name for me that meant something, not like Pegasus. They both laughed, and James said, If it was not for bringing back the past, I should have named him Rob Roy, for I never saw two horses more alike. That's no wonder, said John. Didn't you know that Farmer Gray's old duchess was the mother of them both? I had never heard that before. And so poor Rob Roy, who was killed at that hunt, was my brother. I did not wonder that my mother was so troubled. It seems that horses have no relations. At least they never know each other after they are sold. John seemed very proud of me. He used to make my mane and tail almost as smooth as a lady's hair, and he would talk to me a great deal. Of course, I did not understand all he said, but I learned more and more to know what he meant and what he wanted me to do. I grew very fond of him. He was so gentle and kind. He seemed to know just how a horse feels, and when he cleaned me, he knew the tender places and the ticklish places. When he brushed my head, he went as carefully over my eyes as if they were his own, and never stirred up any ill temper. James Howard, the stable boy, was just as gentle and pleasant in his way, so I thought myself well off. There was another man who helped in the yard, but he had very little to do with Ginger and me. A few days after this, I had to go out with Ginger in the carriage. I wondered how we should get on together, but except laying her ears back when I was led up to her, she behaved very well. She did her work honestly and did her full share, and I never wished to have a better partner in double harness. When we came to a hill, instead of slackening her pace, she would throw her weight right into the collar and pull away straight up. We had both the same sort of courage at our work, 
and John had oftener to hold us in than to urge us forward. He never had to use the whip with either of us. Then our paces were much the same, and I found it very easy to keep step with her when trotting, which made it pleasant. And Master always liked it when we kept step well, and so did John. After we had been out two or three times together, we grew quite friendly and sociable, which made me feel very much at home. As for Merrylegs, he and I soon became great friends. He was such a cheerful, plucky, good-tempered little fellow that he was a favorite with everyone, and especially with Miss Jessie and Flora, who used to ride him about in the orchard and have fine games with him and their little dog, Frisky. Our master had two other horses that stood in another stable. One was Justice, a roan cob, used for riding or for the luggage cart. The other was an old brown hunter named Sir Oliver. He was past work now, but was a great favorite with the master, who gave him the run of the park. He sometimes did a little light carting on the estate, or carried one of the young ladies when they rode out with their father, for he was very gentle and could be trusted with a child as well as Merrylegs. The cob was a strong, well-made, good-tempered horse, and we sometimes had a little chat in the paddock. But of course, I could not be so intimate with him as with Ginger, who stood in the same stable. Six. Liberty. I was quite happy in my new place, and if there was one thing that I missed, it must not be thought I was discontented. All who had to do with me were good, and I had a light, airy stable and the best of food. What more could I want? Why liberty? For three years and a half of my life, I had had all the liberty I could wish for, but now, week after week, month after month, and no doubt year after year, I must stand up in a stable, night and day, except when I am wanted, and then I must be just as steady and quiet as any old horse who has worked twenty years. Straps here and straps there, a bit in my mouth, and blinkers over my eyes. Now, I am not complaining, for I know it must be so. I only mean to say that for a young horse full of strength and spirits, who has been used to some large field or plain where he can fling up his head and toss up his tail and gallop away at full speed, then round and back again with a snort to his companions, I say it is hard never to have a bit more liberty to do as you like. Sometimes, when I have had less exercise than usual, I have felt so full of life and spring that when John has taken me out to exercise, I really could not keep quiet do what I would, it seemed as if I must jump or dance or prance, and many a good shake I know I must have given him, especially at the first. But he was always good and patient. Steady, steady, my boy, he would say. Wait a bit, and we will have a good swing, and soon get the tickle out of your feet. Then, as soon as we were out of the village, he would give me a few miles at a spanking trot, and then bring me back as fresh as before, only clear of the fidgets, as he called them. Spirited horses, when not enough exercised, are often called skittish, when it is only play, and some grooms will punish them. But our John did not. He knew it was only high spirits. Still, he had his own ways of making me understand by the tone of his voice or the touch of the rein. If he was very serious and quite determined, I always knew it by his voice. And that 
had more power with me than anything else, for I was very fond of him. I ought to say that sometimes we had our liberty for a few hours. This used to be on fine Sundays in the summertime. The carriage never went out on Sundays, because the church was not far off. It was a great treat to us to be turned out into the home paddock or the old orchard. The grass was so cool and soft to our feet, the air so sweet, and the freedom to do as we liked was so pleasant. To gallop, to lie down and roll over on our backs, or to nibble the sweet grass. Then it was a very good time for talking, as we stood together under the shade of the large chestnut tree. 7. Ginger One day, when Ginger and I were standing alone in the shade, we had a great deal of talk. She wanted to know all about my bringing up and breaking in, and I told her. Well, said she, if I had had your bringing up, I might have had as good a temper as you. But now, I don't believe I ever shall. Why not, I said. Because it has been all so different with me she replied. I never had anyone, horse or man, that was kind to me, or that I cared to please. For in the first place, I was taken from my mother as soon as I was weaned, and put with a lot of other young colts. None of them cared for me, and I cared for none of them. There was no kind master like yours to look after me and talk to me and bring me nice things to eat. The man that had the care of us never gave me a kind word in my life." I do not mean that he ill-used me, but he did not care for us one bit further than to see that we had plenty to eat and shelter in the winter. A footpath ran through our field, and very often the great boys passing through would fling stones to make us gallop. I was never hit, but one fine young colt was badly cut in the face, and I should think it would be a scar for life. We did not care for them, but of course it made us more wild and we settled it in our minds that boys were our enemies. We had very good fun in the free meadows, galloping up and down and chasing each other round and round the field, then standing still under the shade of the trees. But when it came to breaking in, that was a bad time for me. Several men came to catch me, and when at last they closed me in at one corner of the field, one caught me by the forelock, another caught me by the nose, and held it so tight I could hardly draw my breath. Then another took my jaw in his hard hand and wrenched my mouth open, and so by force they got on the halter and the bar into my mouth. Then one dragged me along by the halter, another flogging behind, and this was the first experience I had of men's kindness. It was all force." They did not give me a chance to know what they wanted. I was high-bred, and had a great deal of spirit, and was very wild, no doubt, and gave them, I dare say, plenty of trouble. But then it was dreadful to be shut up in a stall day after day instead of having my liberty, and I fretted and pined and wanted to get loose. You know yourself, it's bad enough when you have a kind master and plenty of coaxing, but there was nothing of that sort for me. There was one... The old master, Mr. Ryder, who I think could soon have brought me round, and could have done anything with me. But he had given up all the hard part of the trade to his son and another experienced man, and he only came at times to oversee. His son was a strong, tall, bold man. They called him Samson, 
and he used to boast that he had never found a horse that could throw him. There was no gentleness in him, as there was in his father, but only hardness, a hard voice, a hard eye, a hard hand. And I felt from the first that what he wanted was to wear all the spirit out of me, and just make me into a quiet, humble, obedient piece of horse flesh. Horse flesh! Yes, that is all that he thought about. And Ginger stamped her foot, as if the very thought of him made her angry. Then she went on. If I did not do exactly what he wanted, he would get put out and make me run round with that long rein in the training field till he had tired me out. I think he drank a good deal, and I am quite sure that the oftener he drank, the worse it was for me. One day, he had worked me hard in every way he could, and when I lay down, I was tired and miserable and angry. It all seemed so hard. The next morning, he came for me early and ran me round again for a long time. I had scarcely had an hour's rest when he came again for me with a saddle and bridle and a new kind of bit. I could never quite tell how it came about. He had only just mounted me on the training ground when something I did put him out of temper, and he chucked me hard with the rein. The new bit was very painful, and I reared up suddenly, which angered him still more, and he began to flog me. I felt my whole spirit set against him, and I began to kick and plunge and rear as I had never done before, and we had a regular fight. For a long time he stuck to the saddle and punished me cruelly with his whip and spurs, but my blood was thoroughly up, and I cared for nothing he could do if only I could get him off. At last, after a terrible struggle, I threw him off backward. I heard him fall heavily on the turf, and without looking behind me, I galloped off to the other end of the field. There, I turned round and saw my persecutor slowly rising from the ground and going into the stable. I stood under an oak tree and watched, but no one came to catch me. The time went on, and the sun was very hot. The flies swarmed round me and settled on my bleeding flanks where the spurs had dug in. I felt hungry, for I had not eaten since the early morning. But there was not enough grass in that meadow for a goose to live on. I wanted to lie down and rest, but with the saddle strapped tightly on there was no comfort, and there was not a drop of water to drink. The afternoon wore on, and the sun got low. I saw the other colts led in, and I knew they were having a good feed. At last, just as the sun went down, I saw the old master come out with a sieve in his hand. He was a very fine old gentleman, with quite white hair, but his voice was what I should know him by among a thousand. It was not high, nor yet low, but full and clear and kind. And when he gave orders, it was so steady and decided that everyone knew, both horses and men, that he expected to be obeyed. He came quietly along, now and then shaking the oats about that he had in the sieve, and speaking cheerfully and gently to me. Come along, lassie. Come along, lassie. Come along. Come along. I stood still and let him come up. He held the oats to me, and I began to eat without fear. His voice took all my fear away. He stood by, 
patting and stroking me while I was eating, and seeing the clots of blood on my side, he seemed very vexed. Poor lassie. It was a bad business. A bad business. Then he quietly took the rein and led me to the stable. Just at the door stood Samson. I laid my ears back and snapped at him. Stand back, said the master, and keep out of her way. You've done a bad day's work for this filly. He growled out something about a vicious brute. Hark ye, said the father. A bad-tempered man will never make a good-tempered horse. You've not learned your trade yet, Samson. Then he led me into my box, took off the saddle and bridle with his own hands, and tied me up. Then he called for a pail of warm water and a sponge, took off his coat, and while the stable man held the pail, he sponged my sides a good while, so tenderly that I was sure he knew how sore and bruised they were. Whoa, my pretty one, he said. Stand still, stand still. His very voice did me good, and the bathing was very comfortable. The skin was so broken at the corners of my mouth that I could not eat the hay. The stalks hurt me. He looked closely at it, shook his head, and told the man to fetch a good bran mash and put some meal into it. How good that mash was, and so soft and healing to my mouth. He stood by all the time I was eating, stroking me and talking to the man. If a high-mettled creature like this, said he, can't be broken by fair means, she will never be good for anything. After that, he often came to see me, and when my mouth was healed, the other breaker, Job, they called him, went on training me. He was steady and thoughtful, and I soon learned what he wanted. Thank you, again, for continuing to join us for each episode of Storylight. And if you're new to us, we send you the warmest welcome. Whether you're a new listener or an old friend, we at Storylight would be very grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. More than that, though, We would love for more people to be able to enjoy these stories. So please, tell a friend about us. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. We'll see you next time.